0: Have you ever wondered what it would be like to generate a semi-passive income from a business that you love and bought with little to none of your own money? How would it feel if you could finally buy that restaurant, salon, or any business for that matter without having to worry about where you were going to get the money from? Think of the lifestyle that would provide for you, your family, and even your retirement. These are the results that my good friend Ed Kills provides at his company, Beyond Breakeven. He provides world-class coaching on how to structure leverage buyouts for any business so that you can buy it without putting your own personal credit or net worth at risk. He's bought and sold over 25 companies personally over the course of his career and structured many more deals on behalf of clients. And now he wants to help you learn over 100 ways to buy a business with none of your own money. And he also wants to teach you how to earn a six-figure income, helping others do that exact same thing. So if you're ambitious and interested in buying a business with none of your own money, visit ProfitArchitects.com and give that number on the page a call or fill out the request info form and they'll get back to you. Make sure you mention referral code MEMS for a special offer. Now, back to the episode.
1: Welcome back to Abundant Culture Podcast,
0: where we dissect the mindsets and tactics of the true beasts of business.
1: People like Gary Vee, Grant Cardone, and Warren Buffett,
0: all to create a blueprint to experience life more abundantly. Hey, everybody, it's Joe here. Welcome back to the Abundant Culture Podcast. We're so glad to have you back again this week. Let me ask you a question. Did you know that when people leave their jobs, they're not actually running from the company itself, but they're actually running from their manager? I definitely didn't know this until this episode. And in this episode, we're going to discover the do's and don'ts of leadership and management. We're going to find out the leadership qualities that help build or break company cultures and give you, the leader, the tools that you need in order to go out and be effective with not only your customer but your team as well. We're going to learn all of this from a leadership consultant who has helped very, very well known companies such as Facebook, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Chase, and Ace Hardware. So get ready to listen to and learn from our good friend, Rob Sullivan.
1: So hi, Rob, and thank you again for coming on to the Abundant Culture Podcast. We are very glad to have you today because we love, love, love talking about like company cultures and all those cool uh, different things. Uh, but before we get into like all the management questions and everything, um, we have to ask you, how did you get into business? Like what's, what's the backstory behind that?
2: Well, the backstory behind it is that this is a career I that picked me. I didn't pick it. And it all started, uh, you know, the first job I wanted when I got out of school was to work in advertising at Leo Burnett here in Chicago. And it took me a year to get that job and 80 interviews to get that job. But after I did it for about four years, I'm like, you know what, is this all there is? So I moved on from that. I uh, did a bunch of different things. And the common themes throughout that were coaching people. Uh, whether it was people who were in transition looking for a job or coaching salespeople, coaching managers, that kind of thing. And it was all around, uh, you know, the common thread in that was communication, helping people be better communicators, which was somewhat ironic if you had asked some of my former girlfriends. But it was uh, that's how it all started. <laughs> cool. That's really cool. So can you, can you shed a
0: little bit of light on, like, um, your process that you really take people through, whenever you're like let's say you're coaching a salesperson on communication I always was curious about how that's done because I know over time I've become a a lot better communicator than I used to be but if somebody asked me to kind of teach them how to become a better communicator I wouldn't even know where to start so like what what's really the process behind that?
2: Well, the big thing is uh, you know, I'll do a lot of ride-alongs with people in addition to teaching workshops. And I love teaching workshops. It's my bread and butter. That's what I do most, but I, I am also out there on the road with salespeople watching them on their calls. I watch managers run their meetings and, and in watching them, there's plenty of opportunities to coach just when you see how people communicate, because in many cases, they're giving their power away. And it's not about power because you don't want power over anybody. So that's not necessarily the right way to phrase it, but they're, they're, creating a scenario where they're not on the same level as the people they're talking to. They're, they're putting themselves down and, you know, let's face it in sales, especially, Customers are looking for partners in many cases. Yep. They want somebody that they respect, who they value their opinion. And if I'm constantly asking you for permission, feeling like, oh, you know, hey, would it be okay if we did this? And, you know, can I ask you a couple questions about this? And all this permission seeking stuff, unconsciously at some point, you will not see me as a partner because you won't see me as an equal if I keep lowering my status relative to you.
1: Mm. That's interesting. And that's
2: you know, so, watching that and then coaching people on it is a really big part, you know. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think,
0: I can't remember, Uh I was listening to some sales training. I think it was Pitch Anything, and it was talking about the importance of mm-hmm. status. Can you kind of expand on that idea of uh, why status may be a little important when it comes to marketing or sales?
2: Sure. Well, it's a... Let me, let me first say that what I'm speaking about is a cultural thing in the sense that what I'm talking about here applies specifically in the U.S. It doesn't necessarily apply, and it wouldn't apply in countries like Asia or wherever, because there's different rules of engagement when it comes to interacting with people. And I don't profess to be an expert on other cultures, but I can tell you, I know enough about other cultures to know that there are certain things that you do and don't do that you know just don't happen here. So right. with that said, uh, so what, you know, there there's different levels of relationship you could have with a customer. The lowest level, if we're going to talk about sales, the lowest level of relationship uh, would be, you know, what we lovingly refer to as the professional visitor. These are people who had no value whatsoever. They might bring donuts, right? So that that's not where we want to be. But if you move up from that, the next level. Think of it as a pyramid. The next level of the pyramid, forty to fifty percent of salespeople fall in the category of commodity. Or another phrase for it is order taker. So if you're an order taker, you're at the end of your customer's buying process because they've already done all the thinking. They've they've made the plans. They've decided what it is that they want, and so they're shopping around and they're shopping around for what price. So uh, the lower you are from that status standpoint, if you're a commodity or an order taker, then you know you are uh, you're going to be. Fighting the price battle. Moving up from that is what we refer to as the technical expert. About 20 to 30% of people would fall in that category. And then those are the people who uh, customers clearly see that there's an expertise that they can tap into, uh, you know, when they work with people like that and that there's value that those people bring. And the top level, the only 10% of salespeople ever get here is what we call uh, the advisor or partner level. This is where you've got a customer who calls you about things that have nothing to do with what you uh, uh, um. You know, sell. They might be calling you for advice about something completely different. Um, in addition to the expertise that they tap in in your industry, so you know that's a great level to reach. The problem is, you're never going to reach that level if your language is keeping you from reaching that level. And that—that's what I mean. When people are constantly asking for permission, they're saying, "You know, hey, can I ask you a question? Would be okay if we do this?" You know, that through through our language, in many cases, we lower our status. Uh, a really common example is. you you know, somebody calls up and they said, yeah, I, I just want to check in and see how you're doing. Well, you're telegraphing in that moment that the other person's time is more valuable and that you know that you're being a pest. You know, and so there's all kinds of things that people do. You know, contrast that with, you know, I'm calling to check in. You know, you know, we'd sent the proposal last week. I wanted to get your thoughts. You know, there's, you know, at that moment we're on the exact same level. But if I'm saying, oh, you know, hey, you know, I just wanted to see if you've looked at our proposal, you know, I, I just, you know, wanted to see if you have time next week, all that stuff, it communicates really strongly. And sometimes unconsciously that you and I are not on the same level. Wow.
1: That's crazy. Because as you were saying that, I'm like, wow, I, I guess I do kind of sound like that. I need to change the wording that I use.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And and it's everybody does. And it shows up in email too. Yeah.
0: Hmm.
2: Wow, I never really
0: even thought about that. And, um, we, we read that book, uh, pitch anything. And we, it kind of, we we heard about it a little bit, but it's something that you need a constant reminder of because I feel like we live in a world where, you know, you go to McDonald's and obviously that's kind of on the lower to commodity level that you were talking about. And I feel like the consumer is so used to being treated that way. Mm-hmm. that a lot of times, even when we, you know, put our producer hat on and get ready to sell a product or a service, that sometimes we just think back to all those times where, you know, somebody took our order. So we end up taking their order, uh, um, when we're actually supposed to, uh, be advising them or be a partner to them. And I think that's, that's so key. And that's, uh, such a, um, uh, uh, ability that I think people should need to foster, whether they work in an organization or are the owner of that organization.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And the way that I look at it is salespeople. And for many of the reasons that you just talked about, you know, maybe they've had the training at McDonald's and McDonald's provides really good training for customer service you know, as an order taker, yeah. but not as a partner. Right? right. And so if I'm looking at you and I'm saying things like, uh, well, the things that we talked about before, but, you know, take something as subtle as, oh, you know, thanks so much for uh, for taking time to meet with me today. Okay. Their time is clearly more valuable because I'm gushing in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, thanks so much is that's an imbalance. It's subtle, but it's there. And, what, and all these things add up. And I literally watched uh, a team that was presenting and I'll never forget. They had spent, this is a commercial banking team. They had spent six months trying to get this deal. And the, through the words, they sabotage the whole thing in less than five minutes. And you know, when you when you're talking about the commercial banking area, their deals run between fifty and two hundred million dollars, and they've spent three to six months preparing for that presentation. So they've invested between fifty and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of, of their company's time preparing for that, and they threw it out the window with the language. And I kid you not, what the what the prospect said at the end of that presentation was. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I'm not feeling confident moving forward. Well, I can put my finger on it. It was the words they were using, and they were operating at an unconscious level. I went back. I I laid it all out. This is what happened. Uh, But unfortunately, it's not something you can really uh, recover from very easily because if you set that or plant that seed of doubt, it's done. Uh, if they if they question you and you're at that level uh, where there's that much money at stake, the likelihood that they would move forward ever is not that high.
0: Yeah. Wow, yeah, <laughs> and that's amazing that even in commercial banking, something that you would think that is very analytical mm-hmm. and something that is driven solely by the numbers, somebody can turn down a fifty to two hundred million dollar deal because of a gut feeling. So I think that's yeah, extremely- exactly, isn't it wild? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is very wild. Uh so can you also tell yeah. me a little bit about uh the the persistence behind it taking you um I'm, I I should have asked this before but oh, yeah. the 80 interviews mm-hmm. to to get into the advertising company. Uh that's something that I I like when I heard that I'm like wow, this is somebody who understands persistence and I kind of wanted uh to for you to shed light on that and kind of explain to us why you were willing to go on 80 interviews or, uh, 80, 80 tries in order to get, um, that job at the advertising firm.
2: Sure. Uh, it was, well, when I first heard about advertising, I'd been working, I, I did radio in high school and college uh, at our you know, stations and I got really interested in media. And then I saw this presentation from a, a guy who's now a friend of mine at Leo Burnett and he Got me excited about it. When I first th- thought about it, I wasn't even thinking about me. I was thinking about my friend, Andy. But then I realized later, I'm like, this would be the perfect job. and And so I got excited about it. I interviewed and I did a horrible job. Uh, I'll, I'll spare you the gory details uh, other than to say that I did the entire interview in one breath, which is not a good strategy. Uh, so I was super nervous and just, it was terrible, but they saw enough in me that they brought me in for a full day of interviews. And then they said, you know what, we're not gonna be able to offer you a job, but they said, we never shut the door and anybody come back. And in that year, uh, you know, I went to grad school. I continued to interview. I interviewed in New York, Minneapolis, Chicago, all over the place. And it was just something that I really wanted to do. And I'm glad I did it. I'm you know, i the kind of person, I don't stop. You know, If I get a goal, I'm going to keep going. And I, I'm proud of myself that I did. I got Leo Burnett to hire me a year later. I was not a different person, but it took 80 interviews and advertising, 23 interviews at Leo Burnett to get that job. Um, and then that was really what led to everything else. Because then I got, joined the recruiting team and I realized... Uh, on the other side of the desk, what mistakes I was making—they were painfully obvious to me, although I didn't see it when I was interviewing. Yeah. And so it was my commitment to pay it forward for all the people who had helped me along the way. Uh, that was why I wrote my first book, "Getting Your Foot in the Door When You Don't Have a Leg to Stand On," and it led to all of the coaching and everything that I do now. Um, you know, my career has evolved quite a bit. You know, in terms of where my focus is, it isn't solely on advertising so much anymore. It's more—I mean, I help people in advertising, but it's more about other things.
0: Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And can you talk about uh, maybe some of the common mistakes that you found uh, when people are interviewing for positions that they, that they really, really want or desire? Because um, I, I've had experiences. I feel like I've had really good experiences and really bad experiences when it comes to interviewing. And I don't always consciously know what will make a good experience. So uh, can you expand upon that a little bit?
2: Absolutely. I will do my best. This is a three-day workshop, but we'll, I'll (laughs) get something a bit shorter. Yeah. So the biggest single biggest mistake that people make is they're not specific. They don't provide evidence. There is absolutely no reason to believe anything that they're saying because they, they don't back it up with anything. Uh, and so you'll see this on uh, LinkedIn uh, you know, or in just resumes in general. You'll see people talk about their proven track record. I'm sorry, I've never gotten excited about somebody because they have a proven track record. That means nothing. If I ever see that word again, I will probably violently throw up. It's, <laughs> it's awful. Uh, what I want to know is I want the facts. Give me the facts. I don't want the flowery adjectives because I'll make my own judgment about what, whether what you did was good or not. But I don't want you telling me how fabulous you are in adjectives. I want you telling me how fabulous you are in real life experiences and a reason to believe that you're going to do a good job. I was guilty of this. This It would not have taken me 80 interviews to get the job if I had known that and if I had been more in touch with that. I've changed careers now six, seven, eight times, depending on how you want to count. Every single time I did it in one interview, it's not an accident. It's because I learned how to do it. And those, and we're talking about radical career changes. I went from advertising to options trading. I went from options trading to headhunting. Um, I ended up writing a tutorial. Um, I got hired by an options trading website uh, to write their online tutorial, You know, sales training, headhunting. I've done a lot of different things. Every single one of those jobs I got in one interview. Um, you know, and, and, and I didn't have a track record. If you had looked at the, the logistic, the logic, you know, in terms of the logical flow of my career progression, you wouldn't have hired me to walk your dog, but it was something that I learned how to do all, you know, all you've got to do is take the risk out of it for people. And that's the big thing. People don't take. Uh, They don't understand what risk means to whether it's a customer, a hiring manager, or or whatever. And, And so once you realize what that is, then it's, excuse me, it's easier to go back and try to get rid of that.
0: Awesome. And that's really, really great too. That's really key because I think a lot of people like, when, when they're writing resumes, they're trying to think about how to, you know, spruce themselves up Mm -hmm. instead of showcasing actual skills that they have. Um, Can you like, and for you, I I always, I was kind of wondering, like, how were you able to take the risk out of hiring you for an industry that you've actually, you know, never really worked in? Were you just expanding upon the skills that you learned in the previous industry and telling them how that works for this one? Or how did you actually
2: do that? Well you can do it in a, a few different ways. You know, the, the biggest challenge and the easiest one to point to is people who are right out of school because they don't have experience by definition. And at the entry level, Uh, no one would expect them to yet. They have to sell themselves on potential. We are all selling ourselves on potential unless, you know, you don't, unless you're going for a job that you've basically done before at the competitor, which in my question then would be why, why aren't you going for something higher? You know, it's always about potential. And so, Uh, You know how do you sell that? How do you convince people? Well, a big part of it is to trace your passion, help people understand why they're not taking a risk. You know, you look at the average person. You know, like when I would uh, when I would be interviewing advertising candidates, as an example, one of the questions that I thought was going to be a throwaway question was, you know, tell me one of your best ideas ever. Because theoretically, if you want to get into an ideas industry, you would have had one at some point. Most of the people looked at me with a blank stare. They were like, oh, I don't know. Let me think about that. I'm sitting here going what's the connection? Why would you want to do this if that's not how you think? It doesn't make any sense. Now, one young woman looked at me and she looked at me and she said, I've had so many good ideas. Let me take a minute and think about which one I like best. And I was like, okay, great. And then she shared a really cool story. I was like, all right, great. I like her. You know, you know, there were people who, you know, and they, it doesn't matter what the idea is. I and mean, they were random. I remember one person who's like, their best idea ever was to have a house with two dishwashers so they'd never have to unload. I'm like, that's a pretty cool idea. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. So I just want to know how people think, but if you can't give me any evidence of how you think, then I'm not really, I'm not terribly interested in having you on my team. You know, as an example, if I need you to have ideas, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's like an excellent question too. And when you said it, I was like, I would have thought that would have been a throwaway question too, but it's genius. Like, yeah, it's a really good question.
1: Learning about their character. um, It seems like more than their skill set.
0: Yeah, for
2: sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And so another question that I would ask people, and this doesn't necessarily have to do with measuring their potential, but to get to the point about the character, I'd ask them a series of questions about, you know, I'd say, I'd start out and I'd say, you know, what are five adjectives your best friend would use to describe you? And then I would say, what are, uh, uh somebody who doesn't know you well, doesn't like you, what are five adjectives that person would use to describe you? And then I would say, what are five adjectives you might use to describe me? And the idea behind this, I got this from uh, one of my bosses. He's a great guy. Um, and his name was Tom. And he told me that he did this. And I was like, I, I took on it. And I built on it because it was like, I love what he was doing. The first question is, you know, you know, how would your best friend describe you? You wouldn't believe how many people look at me and say, like, oh, detail oriented. I'm like, they don't love you because you're detail oriented. Knock <laughs> off. Yes. You know, what is it that they like about you? Yeah. You know, people, you know, then sometimes people would, you know, be a little bit more open. The question about, somebody who doesn't know you well, doesn't like you. What I'm going for there is how aware are you of how you come across? Like for me, I know I've resting jerk face. So like if I, you know, somebody who doesn't know me, they might describe me as intense, condescending, a lot of words that people who know me wouldn't use. So it doesn't mean that they're true. It just means that they are, that's how you're coming across. And then my follow-up question to that, you know, at the end, after I go through all this is, is okay. So let's imagine that you're on a team with somebody and, you know, you've just met and you're not having a really good chemistry and you think that they might describe you as and then I'll read back their adjectives. And I'll say, you know, how would you handle that? It's amazing what you learn about people. I remember one guy is like, oh, well, you know, I, I, you know, he goes, that would have to be my boss. And I'm thinking, OK, well, that's odd, but all right. And then I said, well, what would you do? He's like, well, I talked to his secretary and I'm thinking, OK, at what point are you going to talk to him? And I said, well, what if you didn't get any good information from the secretary? He said, well, I'd call his wife at home and I'm like, oh, my God, you're not I'm not hiring you you know, because that person has no judgment. And they clearly don't have the ability to have a conversation with the person they need to talk to. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want somebody who's going to be in avoidance mode constantly. I want, you know, if you and I have an issue, let's you and I talk about it, not you talk to 12 other people who are then going to talk to me, and then I'm going to talk to them, and they're going to talk to the person. It's like, no, why do people communicate like that? That's not somebody I would ever hire. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. and, and it's strange, too, because it seems like that's exactly how a lot of uh, corporations operate. It's like you want to, you know, you have a problem with somebody who's maybe a level or two levels up, and then you have to go through all of these other people in order to just to talk to that person. And I always felt like that was very inefficient. So it's really good to hear that you also <laughs> think that same, same thing.
2: Well, not only is it inefficient, it's disrespectful yeah yeah you know because you're not if you have an issue with me and you're not giving me a chance to to resolve it, shame on you, mm-hmm. yeah for sure yeah.
1: so what do you think about the questions like the um what is your biggest strength and what is your biggest weakness because that's asked like so much in
2: interviews <laughs> right, okay, so the weakness question I don't ask at all, and I don't recommend that people ask it a because it's expected and everybody knows it's coming and B because, um, it just doesn't, you know, it's, it's not helpful. Uh, it, it scares people unnecessarily. And the, the question, the five adjectives about somebody who doesn't know you all, well, doesn't like you, that's your weakness. That's a weakness, right? You know, is how are you coming across when you're not coming across the way you want to come across. And so I would turn that around. If somebody said, what's your weakness? I might say, you know, sometimes, you know, for people who don't know me, they might see me as intense or, you know, you know, and I have to work a little harder. You know, somebody who grew up in downtown Chicago, smiling at complete strangers is not something I do naturally, but I'm working on it. Right. So that's um, being more approachable. That to me is it's, it is a weakness for what I do too, because, you know, I need people to know that I'm approachable and if they don't feel like I am at first blush, that's a weakness. So that's the answer to that question. And so that's why I ask something different because I'm tired of hearing people say, Oh, I'm a perfectionist or chocolate or something totally ridiculous because it doesn't help me understand that the spirit of the question is good, but the execution is horrible.
0: Yeah. And I think sometimes it's like, um, people are incentivized not to be totally transparent during interviews. And when you're asking them questions like that, a lot of times you're not going to, you're not going to get the real, you know, answer.
2: Exactly. I want the real answer. Cause think about this. I'm going to be spending more waking time with this person than I would with a spouse or family member. I don't want to hire the fake version of you. I want to know who you are, you know, who you are is either going to be a fit or it's not. But if you hide that from me, then there's a h- higher likelihood that it isn't going to be a fit.
0: Because eventually, what I found is it's definitely going to come out one day. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm not looking for perfection. Nobody's perfect. I'm looking for somebody who can admit their mistakes, somebody who, uh, you know, th- th- there's certain qualities that are going to be important. It depends on the job. But, <laughs> excuse me, I want to know that this person has some of the skills that I would never be able to teach them or maybe don't have time.
0: That's a really awesome point. So when you're when – you're, um when you're actually hiring somebody or talking to a manager about hiring it, I always hear this, this split between hard skills and soft skills and personality and chemistry. Would you say like the actual technical st- skills, like how important is that um, to you in the hiring process?
2: It, again, it depends on the position, but the bottom line is this: I can teach you. Maybe not me, but you know, people can be taught almost anything uh, if it's important. Now, you know, obviously, if you're going for a you know CFO level position, I'm not looking for somebody that we need to teach accounting to because theoretically they should already have all of that dangled along with finance and everything else. So, there's a certain you have to ask yourself: What are the the core skills that are at a minimum, what we're looking for. But that whole idea of, you know, do they have to have absolutely everything? No, not necessarily. What I want, if they don't have something, I want a reason to believe they're going to pick it up quickly. So that goes back to evidence. So tell me about something where somebody asked you to do something and you didn't have the experience, but you made things happen and got results in a really you know, short period of time. That's the kind of evidence that I'm looking for because I want to know that you have initiative and that you can work through a challenge like that. I'm not looking for perfection on day one.
0: Absolutely. I love it.
2: Go
1: ahead. <laughs> um, so what is the importance of like good management and good leadership?
2: Ah, huge. The number one pe- reason people leave companies is because they're managers. You know, I laugh every year when that, you know, hundred best companies to work for in America survey shows up because if you have the worst manager at the best company to work for in America, you may as well be at the worst company to work for in America because there's no difference. Um, it all you know starts and ends with the manager. And so when I coach teams, it's heartbreaking to see how many managers who maybe have never had training, so it's not necessarily their fault, uh, have had just constant attrition and issues because people leave because they don't like their leadership style. And they don't know any different. And then you try to coach them. And sometimes they've got habits. And sometimes they're not totally forthcoming with what exactly is going on. It can be challenging to coach people in that regard. But that's why training is so important, because things that you would think um, it's not a common sense job, you know. How you uh, there are you know, tons of books written on leadership and management, and there's principles you need to know. You can't delegate to everybody the same way because it depends where they're at from a what we call a readiness standpoint. You know, are they uh, you know are they willing and able? Um, you know, and, and that's a key thing because there's you know four variations of that. You know, not willing, not able, not willing and able, able and not willing. You know, you can break it all apart. I got to coach all those people differently. I can't just, you know, look at you and say, okay, I'm going to have you do this. And by the way, you're going to do this too. Because if you're in two different places, then I just skirt it up right from the start. Um, And so management, I I mean, I could go on for days because this is another long training that I do, but this is, there's almost nothing more important in a company that that you've got good management in place.
0: Yeah. And that's really amazing because there's some companies, um, even include my own sometimes where I was, I'm always... Amazed why the people are as loyal as they are, um, and then other companies where it's like, man, this looks like a sweet gig, and everybody's quitting. <laughs> you know, so it's it's always very fascinating to me. I was like, um, we own a coffee shop, so I asked all my employees the other day. I was like, so do you guys just literally like being like baristas? And they were like. Yeah, we like being baristas. And also we sent out like an anonymous survey to kind of get feedback and where they could be brutally honest and not have to worry about being, you know, the guy who said this. Um, And they were talking about how they, 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 they liked them, you know, their core, the the co-workers, and they also uh, enjoy the the management too, and, and the leadership. So And it's, it's very, it's very fascinating to me because I I look at all those people and I'm like, man, you could probably get paid a little bit better (laughs) to be honest, um, uh, you know, somewhere else, but they, but they stay. And then there's, I do have, um, no people in my own life who they'll have a job and it, and it pays a, a very nice salary and they're like miserable and cannot wait for a reason to quit. So it's, yep. I think that really goes back to um, good management and and leadership.
2: Yeah. yeah, and it starts with the culture too. I mean, the thing that impressed me about Burnett and why I wanted to work there in the first place, it's such a strong culture. I don't think it's still true, but uh, when it was a private company, Uh, you know, people, I had one of the questions I asked in interviews, I said, you know, what, what's something about this company that you wish everybody knew that nobody, you know, that they might not think to ask. Now that doesn't beg for a positive or a negative question. They could look at me and say something horrible, or they could look at me and say something great. And I still remember one guy looked at me and he said, he's like, I love this company. He said, uh, you know, these, my wife and I have been having a hard time having a kid. And he said, the company is giving us several thousand dollars to help us adopt a child it's like wow that's a cool benefit yeah and the fact that that was the very first thing he thought to tell me about this company I'm like now i get why people stay and, and want to be here their whole career you know cuz that's it was it, it wasn't just words on a page saying oh we've got a family oriented culture or whatever they lived and breathed it
0: yeah, yeah
2: and that's amazing.
0: and you also mentioned mentioned um it might have had a better culture when it was a privately owned company do you believe that it's just simpler for a privately owned company to have uh that culture or is it just a coincidence that that had to be the company that kind
2: of No, yeah, the problem is when you get into publicly traded companies or the worst of all possible scenarios private equity based companies uh, private equity people think they're the smartest people in the room they're not in invariably when and they're very so here's the thing with leadership and we teach this in leadership training there's you got to be goal oriented and you have to be people oriented Private equity is people, or is goal-oriented, 100% goal-oriented. They could care less about the people; they're interchangeable parts as far as they're concerned. That's a huge mistake. People are not interchangeable parts, and right. so you know if you value the people equally with the goals, you're going to end up in a good place. But when you get in a situation where people are looking at the numbers, it doesn't work that way. There's a—I a, don't remember the name of it, but I remember hearing a year or two ago that there's a, a new stock exchange that they're creating where there is there there allowing companies not to have to do quarterly earnings because they don't want the focus to be on what are the numbers right now, because the numbers right now do not tell the story. And having worked with salespeople, I can tell you there, you know, there's a, a, uh, when they project out and they say, Oh, well, you know, I've got a really high degree of certainty that this is going to close half the time. It's not a pipeline. It's a pipe dream. They're never going to hit those numbers. And so you know, it's, if there's too much focus on the bottom line and you have to be focused on the bottom line, cause you know, we're all in business to make money. And if we don't make money, we won't be in business. But the, the problem with, with the publicly traded and the, uh, and as I said, the, uh, uh, private equity, it, then it's too, too focused on the money. doesn't work.
0: Absolutely. And that really, that really makes sense because, um, for, for us, you know, uh, when we, you know, got into the, businesses that we're in, we always knew that um we kind of wanted to change this idea of uh being in business just for money um because we tried that <laughs> crashed and burned horribly well, actually didn't crash and burn nothing happened actually so, <laughs> so absolutely nothing happened um but uh we wanted to change that mindset to less focus on creating the best company culture that we can and then just see what happens uh to the bottom line Mm -hmm. and and a lot of times like we were surprised like when we uh bought this uh bought this coffee shop uh location at how just very very small minute tweaks to not only uh the the culture but also like you know simple stuff like signage or whatever really boosted the the you know the top line sales in that company and I was like wow like this this is actually a real thing culture even though you can't say oh it's going to be a 20% return or this percent return it does have some type of return and you just have to kind of wait in order to see what that is
2: oh for sure I know one company where they fired a 100 million dollar client because of the impact, the negative impact it was having on the morale of their team. And they said, time out. We spent a lot of time and money recruiting the best people in the world to do this job. We're not letting a single client drive them away. And kudos to them. They were a private company at the time. They were able to retain all of those employees, even though some of them didn't have a new uh, assignment for up to two years. You know, a public company would never be able to do that. Oh, no, (laughs) absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) it just wouldn't work. Their their shareholders would like, you know, blow a gasket
2: (laughs) if they did that. Well, that's the the unfortunate thing. They assume that shareholders are idiots and money-focused. I, as a shareholder, would want you to be making the right business decision, and I'm trusting that you're in that position to do that. And if the right business decision is keeping people and paying them, Uh, then that's exactly what you should do. That's one of the hugest mistakes that companies make. Like with salespeople, they'll do really well and they'll look at it and go, oh, wow, look at how much money we're paying these salespeople. And it's like, yeah, they're earning it. And so cutting somebody's commission is the dumbest strategy of all because all you manage to do is take your top performers and get them to go look for another job. Really? Yeah. What, what sense did that make? You know, the, the, the myth is that, you know, it's possible to pay people too much money. No, the, 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 your biggest risk is not paying somebody too much money. Your biggest risk is paying the wrong person at all. You know, if you've got a good employee and they're profitable, you know, assuming that, you know, the whole relationship is profitable, there are companies that will offer commissions on deals that are not profitable to the company. I don't know how you can do that and stay in business, but assuming that everything else is equal and you're profitable after you paid the commission, then, you know, great, keep, keep doing it. It's working.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when you're looking at a company and you're looking to uh, coach somebody who is considered maybe like a top level performer, like how, how are you looking at that? Or are you even looking to coach uh, top performers?
2: You got to coach everybody. But the thing with top performers is that you don't do much. You you figure out where they need support and you make sure that you provide it. And that's about it. You stay out of their way. Because if they're a top performer, they don't need to be micromanaged. They don't need you in their business constantly. They just need to know that you're there in case you need them. So yeah. I'll never forget. I was leading a management uh, training and this one young woman came up to me. She was a recently promoted manager and she had one of the top salespeople in the company uh, on her team. She was in tears. She's like... I don't know what I need to do to fix him. I looked at him, I go, don't fix him don't fix Get on your hands and knees and thank God that you got a really good person. And just ask him where he needs help. Because you can open doors for him that he might not be able to open simply because you're at a higher level. But I said, leave him alone. Stop trying to fix him. You know, you don't need to do that. Put your energy somewhere else. I said, if you do that, you're going to drive him away, he will leave.
0: Yeah, Yeah, for sure.
2: Uh,
0: What about the underperforming uh, people? Like, what is your process with them? I'm assuming that is very, very different. But uh, shed a little bit of light on that.
2: Sure. Underperformers are interesting, because my big question is, why are they underperforming? Because unless you're really bad at recruiting, they didn't start there. So, you know, what happened to cause them to get into this place where they're not, where it's not working very well. Uh, Sometimes we refer to it as the dead zone, uh, you know, if it's really gotten bad. Uh, And the question is, you know, is it salvageable? You know, is it something, let's, let's take the, you know, it's not too far gone, it's salvageable, we can do something about it, that, you know, a, a more typical scenario, right? Uh, and, and every they all happen, by the way, but the, somebody who is not performing, first I want to figure out why. So, and what kind of a gap are we talking about? Is it a skill gap? Is it a will gap? Is it a knowledge gap? Uh, because they're not all the same. If it's a if it's a knowledge gap, knowledge is binary. I can teach you what you don't need, what you didn't know, and and once you know it, you should be okay. Um, you know, it's like to use a really simple analogy. Like you know, you teach somebody how to tie their shoes, you never have to do it again. Uh, a skill gap is a bit different because. You know, I can teach you all the keys on a piano, but it doesn't mean you're going to be able to play a Beethoven sonata tonight. Yeah. Uh, you need to practice. You need to, you know, learn. You know, there's a higher levels of learning with that. Um, and then the, the will gap, uh, the, if you think of it as a triangle, you know, and so these are the three common gaps. The will gap is the most insidious because it's often referred to as an attitude problem, but many, many times it's a skill gap in disguise, so when somebody seems like they've got a bad attitude or they're not working, chances are good. They need some training. You just have to figure out where it is. Hmm.
1: So how do you kind of figure out like what, what that gap is um, as far as like the skill gap, if it is like the, the attitude problem?
2: Okay, so let me give you a real life scenario. Uh, I'm working with a, a manager at a hotel and uh, they one of the people on the team uh, has what they perceive as an attitude problem. It's a person on the catering side and she's constantly promising things to clients and she's been... Taught and told not to do that. Um, and so and she's losing trust within the team internally. You know, things are not good. And, every, and whenever they ask her about it, they're like, why are you doing this? She, you know, we told you not to do this. She's like, oh, but, you know, we're customer focused. We've got to deliver what the customer needs. And, you know, her answer sounded good, but they weren't, you know, there was something else going on. And, and the woman came to me and she said, I don't know what to do. Cause I, and I asked her, so what kind of a gap are we looking at here? She said, oh, it's definitely an attitude problem. And as I thought about it, and as we learned a little bit more, and I asked a few more questions, I tuned in because I'm very intuitive, and I—that's a big part of how I coach people. And people are often surprised. You know, I'll say, you know, I don't know the person, but based on what I'm hearing, I'm getting a feeling that what you're dealing with is. And they'll look at me and go, "Oh my gosh, you know, how did you know that?" Uh, which is cool. At first, I wasn't always comfortable sharing that, and I wasn't even comfortable tapping into it. But now I do it all the time, and, and it, I have great results from it. So in this particular case, here's what happened: when I tuned into this woman to try to get a sense of thinking. About it from her point of view, it's really the ultimate in empathy. You know, I'm not trying to look at it from the manager's point of view. Of, you know, this is a, how am I going to fix this person? It's like what's going on? Because if you truly understood a person, they're not behaving irrationally. They're behaving very rationally based on the way they view the world. And so, I tuned into her and short version of the story is she had two skill gaps that she was missing. the First one is she doesn't know how to say no. Um, that's a big. That's a skill. Uh, I had a manager at Burnett who did not know how to say no. It was a disaster. It led to all kinds of fire drills that never should have happened. And so the ability to look at somebody and say, I get that this is really important to you, we're not going to be able to do it, that's a skill and it requires some training. The other thing is she didn't know how to negotiate. Because those two things go hand in hand. If I, you know, am telling you no, then I, you know, what can I do for you? What and she really didn't have much skill in that area. So we began to work with her on those two components because that was what was missing. It looked like an attitude problem. It wasn't that attitude problem at all. Oh wow!
0: And and that's very uh, insightful too because I feel like one of that manager's mistakes that was that. Uh, they kind of jump to a conclusion Mm -hmm. on that person without necessarily digging deep into the problem. And that's something that, you know, I seek to have the ability to do. And I'm still new at, you know, managing people and running a company and stuff like that. So I'm still learning. So this podcast episode is great for me, (laughs) but um, you know, being able to say, no, 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 like this, this, this is what it seems to be on the surface Let's see what it is deep down at the root of the problem before I make a decision.
2: Exactly. Now here's where it gets tricky. And this is why intuition is so important. That team member is never going to look at you and say, Oh, I don't know how to say no. And I'm terrible at negotiating. Exactly. They don't, they don't know what they don't know. So it's in that category of they're never going to be able to tell you. Um, and, and it's not that they don't want to tell you, it's just that they don't realize it. And so you've got to figure it out and connect the dots without, Uh, Thinking about all the pressure that's on you and making it about you because it's too many people We look at the world from our own point of view And we never really look at the world from anybody else's point of view And when you take a few minutes and sit down and imagine you are that other person You have a completely different viewpoint of whatever it is and i've used that for negotiation i've used it for coaching It really does make a difference to to stop for a second Shut off your own filters and just really imagine that you are the person that you're interacting with Absolutely
0: So um,
1: what's the biggest mistake that you see managers make?
2: Oh, so many. Um, The biggest mistake is, you know, I was thinking about that this morning, too, um, you know, as I was getting ready for this. uh, The biggest mistake is really not knowing their team very well you know, not having that empathy to be able to tune in and to recognize when something has become more draining than energizing and when people are sliding into that dead zone. Uh, Because if you can tap into that and you have a pulse for what's happening with your team, things are going to go a lot more smoothly. If you're, you know, know, there's nothing wrong with being hands-off, but you have to be hands-on enough to know what's happening. So finding that balance of not micromanaging, but not, uh, uh, you know, being just unavailable either. Yeah,
0: for sure. And based off of that, what are some, I guess, you would say maybe the top three uh, tips for managers to actually succeed uh, with their team?
2: Okay, perfect. Uh, So the first one is be strategic about recruiting. That's really important. Uh, You know, we talked earlier about uh, the those innate qualities, you know, who is this person? What are the things that we need them to be? You know, who do we need them to be that we can't train them to be? Uh, and so if you've been smart about that and you recruited somebody who's genuinely interested in the business and is going to go that, you know, uh, you know, take the extra, you know, do the extra you know, work that the average person might not necessarily do because they do have initiative. That's a great place to start. Now, if you inherited the person, there's not a whole lot you can do about that, but from a recruiting standpoint, you want to make sure that you got the right person in the first place. Uh, second one involve teams in the decision. You got a challenge in front of you. Don't sit there and put all the weight on your shoulders and try to figure it out for yourself. You know, example of that, I'll be working with sales managers and they'll say, oh, you know, we've got, you know, the company just increased our quota 20% and I don't know how we're going to hit that number. And then they try to figure out how they're going to divide it out among the team and who's going to have to do what. And I said, no, don't do that. And, you know, because think about it from the team member's perspective. Do you want to be told what to do in the face of a challenge like that, or do you want to be involved in the, in the decision to be able to sit down with your team and say, "Here's what the company's asking us. I'm honestly, you know, I gotta, you know, I need some help with the, how are we going to do this? You know, what makes the most sense? Let's together come up with a plan." I'm going to feel empowered as a team member in that conversation. I'm not going to feel empowered if the person sat there, you know, stayed awake for, you know, how many nights trying to figure it out and then came and dictated to me what I needed to do. So involve teams in the decision, that's number two. And then uh, the third thing, and we talked about this already a bit, but it comes back to uh, that, the original part of the conversation, which is watch your words. Uh, The, the worst performing team that I Coached, and it was at a project where I watched a lot of different managers within this company. The lowest ranking team from a performance standpoint was led by the manager with the worst communication style. He was the one who was constantly asking people, "Oh, you know, hey, could you give me an update on this account? You know, would it be okay if we did this? You know, I was thinking about riding along, riding along with you on your next call. Is that okay? All this permission seeking stuff, along with you know, a ton of other communication flaws that I work with people on." No surprise, he's got the worst performing team. And the sad part of that is, and why this is such a big deal, is that your team will mirror you as a manager. So if you have ineffective communication styles, guess who's picking that up? It's like kids with their parents. And so they go out then, and what happens? They get in front of customers, and they start doing the same thing. Oh, you know, it would be okay if we did this. You know, what do you need us to do? You know, All these totally ineffective approaches. So watch your words. That's number three. Absolutely.
1: I love those. Um, And it seems like you need some of the characteristics of like a good manager or skills is um, empathy and lots of humility. Um, Are there any other like top skills that you think managers need?
2: Well, the biggest one that leads to all of that is listening. You know, I've got, and and, and when I say listening, it's not just listening on the surface. I have an entire workshop that I do on listening. And there's different reasons that people listen. If you think about it, you know, sometimes people listen to understand. Sometimes they listen for enjoyment. Sometimes they listen to sabotage. They want to hear, you know, what's the thing that I can pounce on? Managers do that all the time. Yeah. Uh, and so how are we listening? Are we truly listening to understand it, to get a sense of what's happening? Or are we listening because we have our own agenda in mind and we're trying to put that forth?
0: Wow. wow. Yeah. And another thing I was uh, really... Really wanted to chime in on was that second one that you spoke about was that um, just having having the ability what was what was it the second one was
2: oh the second one was uh, involve the team involve the team I think
0: that's awesome because I feel like a lot of times as a as the manager. Um, the manager wants to feel like the responsible one, the (laughs) smartest one on the team. That's why they're the manager. And I, I even witnessed this, um, in one of our own team meetings with me, I was uh, telling the team, uh, kind of like the goal, what I kind of wanted to accomplish. And I told them I didn't have it all together yet, but I was kind of sitting there brainstorming it. And literally one of the employees right across the table said, well, why don't you just do this? And I was like... Holy crap. I thought about this for about three weeks straight and she came (laughs) up with this in like three seconds. And it was the most brilliant thing. So I think anybody listening, you should really try to really find the gold in your team because they have abilities, knowledge, experiences that you don't have. It doesn't matter if you're somebody who has a decade's worth of experience and they're in their first year, they still have experienced things that you have not. So I think that's really, really invaluable.
2: Absolutely. A good idea can come from anywhere and they're on the front lines. There's a, a much bigger chance that they've thought about it even more than you have.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. for sure.
2: Definitely.
1: So what is the number one takeaway that you like for someone to get from this episode?
2: Number one takeaway by far, trust your intuition. You know, we have, we've all had a gut instinct that we didn't follow and later wished we had. That's what they're there for. You know, yeah, that, that's a big one. And if I, if I can have it, can I have a second one? Yeah, yes. go ahead. <laughs> uh, it would be to, to have an abundant mentality and not a scarcity mentality. Uh, that's one of the biggest challenges that I see with companies. And did you, well, it's not just companies, it's people. So, on the people level, it shows up most often when people say, Oh, you know, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough this. I don't have enough that. And so, we have, a, and I worked really hard to overcome my scarcity mentality around money. Uh, the other thing, though, that plays out in business because you've got companies that will say, Well, if, if I build this road and it lasts, you know, more than a year or two, then I'm gonna be out of business because nobody's gonna hire me. You know, it's say like nonsense. No, if you build a road that lasts, then I can hire you to do something else rather than redoing the work that you didn't do well the first time. But we, we do that. We have business, companies have a scarcity mentality. One of the first light bulbs uh, built by Thomas Edison is still burning a million hours later. We know how to create light bulbs that last. We choose not to because we have a scarcity mentality around that. Uh, and it shows up in a million different ways. So, you know, have an abundant mentality, believe that there are more than enough customers out in the world, that there are more than enough ideas. You know, if you are, you know, overly protective of things and you you know, have this feeling like, oh, you know, we got to do it this way. You know, it's what led companies when well, you don't hear about them anymore, but Beach Nut was a company that, you know, they their scarcity mentality was around you know do well it led to basically illegal behavior because they created a baby applesauce apple apple juice that contained no apple juice <laughs> excuse me and they got sued and as they should have but like you know how was it that they were able to do that for so long and people didn't blow the whistle on them you know, we need to hold people accountable for stuff. The the lack of integrity that starts with a scarcity mentality is rampant. We need to to you know we need honest people who can help us get past that.
0: Absolutely, I love that. Yeah, and I have another question that's for me. Honestly, I meant to ask it before, <laughs> but um, when it comes to uh, you you talked about the permission seeking behavior, how can somebody quickly just like one catch that and change their language to somebody who will be more of an advisor or a partner.
2: Okay, so there's an acronym I want you to remember. It's TED, um, and it stands for tell me, explain, describe. If you start your sentence with one of those three words, you're not going to be doing permission-seeking stuff. You know, and if you think about it, you know, can you tell me this? You know, can you describe, can you explain? That's permission seeking. If I skip that and I go right to, you know, tell me more about that. And, and the, the key thing is tone because you have to come across as genuinely interested, not demanding. So I'm not saying tell me. I'm saying, you yeah, tell me more. Uh, you know, so it's the same words, but it comes across differently.
0: Absolutely. And that's so gold. Just
2: not saying, can you?
0: Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. That makes sense. It's all Mm -hmm. in the tonality and stuff. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Now, the other thing too is go easy on yourself because when you start to become more conscious of this, you're going to catch yourself after you've said it. Don't beat yourself up. That's actually a moment to celebrate because if you can't catch yourself saying it, you'll never be able to stop it. So what you have to do then is, you know don't go back and look at all your emails to figure out where you use the word just. That's way too humbling and I definitely don't recommend that. But what I do recommend is correcting yourself in the moment. So if you say something, uh, and, and it wasn't what you intended. Just stop and fix it. Just re. just go back. We do that all the time. Uh, and no one's going to think twice about it. They won't even know why you're doing it probably, but it will create that uh, a higher perceived presence right there in the moment. Uh, I had young, one young woman come up to me after the end of a workshop and she said, you just eliminated my entire vocabulary. Cause we spent a lot of time on all these other common words and, and I laughed because it was a pretty funny line, but it's true. You know, we have tons of bad habits when it comes to communicating and helping people avoid that. Uh, it, it's amazing how it does change the game. One qu- last quick little thing, you know, another communication thing, it wasn't really a word. It was more um, a way of, of speaking. Uh, I coached this woman on it because she was missing it completely. And I told her, I said, when you add this to your repertoire, I said, I promise you, people are going to change the way they respond to you and they will and they won't know why. And it was really funny because she had come to me for coaching because she was being perceived as bombastic at times and very direct, overly direct. Um, Two weeks later, and she took it on because she she knew she was a C-level executive and she knew she needed help. She called me back and she said, I got to tell you this. She said, the president of the company just stopped me in the elevator. And he said, I don't know what it is you're doing differently, but keep it up. I love it. And it's like, it really does make a difference because most of it's operating on an unconscious level. And so, you know, if the president of the company sees a difference, but can't identify it, you know, it's not obvious. Yes, Mm -hmm. for sure.
1: Yeah, that's so
0: awesome. (laughs) And since you're on the Abundant Culture podcast, we always like to ask our guests, whether it be in their personal life, their business, uh, at the country club that they go to, whatever the case may be, how do they actually how do you actually spread abundance?
2: How do I spread abundance? The best way to spread it is to to demonstrate it and to live it. And and to, and to be really honest about that. You know, like for example, uh, I was um, in October, I was looking at my calendar and I looked at December and I thought, wow. I don't have much on the calendar in December. And I said, well, I have a choice right now. I can worry about that, or I can be grateful in advance that good things are going to happen. And I've shared this story with a bunch of people, so it's part of my spreading how to be more abundant. And so I said, I'm going to be grateful for all the cool things that are coming. I got booked for six days, right, almost right off the bat, by a a fellow trainer who wasn't able to do an assignment and they asked me to do it. And then one of my uh, favorite clients called me up and asked, had me do another day. So within a very short period of time, December became one of the busiest months of the year. And, you know, more than covered what I needed to make, you know, where if I sat there and worried about it, it would be like, you know, okay, what's that going to look like? I'm doing the same thing right now with March. I'm looking because I've got, you know, February is totally jammed. I've got all kinds of stuff in April and June. In March, I'm like, okay, you know, uh, I'm not worried about it though, because it's happening and and you just have to trust that. For sure. Got to believe it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So for the person that Uh, maybe they know they need help with their communication. Maybe they keep saying just, or can, can you, um, or maybe there's an owner of a company out there that has a manager and they, they just want them to get a little bit more help in managing a team. Um, or maybe people just think you're like, just really awesome. How can they get into contact with you?
2: (laughs) Okay, so the best, I I love the way you think. That's great. Uh, The best way to reach me is on my uh, new website, which is called Sullivan Zale. And it's the word, you know, Sullivan, my last name, S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N, and then Z-Y-L dot com. Uh, Sullivan Zale is uh, a a company that I put together with my friend Barry Von Zale and Jocelyn Ross, and it's a training company international. They're in uh, South Africa and Europe, respectively. And so uh, that's the thing. You know, we're doing all of this training around Uh, you know, energy and listening. Barry is a professional musician. Um, He worked with Johnny Clegg for years. Uh, And so, you know, he's played in front of audiences of literally 150,000. So he brings a completely different uh, energy to what we do. And he's, he's a drummer. So it's all about what we call the rhythm of business. So, you know, there's... Tons of work that we're doing that's really exciting. That's, you know, beyond the career coaching that I got started with, where it's much more focused on companies and helping people uh, interact, communicate the team building. So, SullivanZale.com is where you want to go. And if you look me up, just Rob Sullivan, you'll find me because I've got a couple of websites, but you won't have any trouble.
1: <laughs>
2: awesome.
0: awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, we are so glad that you came on to the podcast today. You gave us a uh, very, very Uh, extremely valuable information, information that honestly, I don't think um, we've actually had any other guests actually talk about on this podcast before. And we really do appreciate your wealth of knowledge that you shared here today.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, maybe we can reconnect when my book uh, gets a little further along in terms of uh, the publication and whatnot. So absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
2: (laughs) All right. Uh, Thanks. It was really fun. I definitely enjoyed uh, this time. Thank
0: Thank you. Thank (laughs) you. So that's all we have for today, folks. I hope you got as much value out of this as we did. Keep in mind, the only way we can improve is through constructive feedback. So remember to rate and review this episode. Also, you are not the only person that needs to know this super valuable information. So be sure to subscribe and share as well. Stay tuned for the next episode and remember to always spread abundance. Peace.